1: Everybody, welcome back to chasing frets. my name is Jason Shadrick and I'm joined this week with Andy Ellis. Hello and uh, as you heard on Monday we have John Pizzarelli uh, as our guest this week and on Monday's uh, episode we talked went real deep into the nuts and bolts of the seven string and the influences and and how he kind of approaches it and today's episode we're gonna focus on kind of the art of the standard he's he's really known as A traditionalist really kind of hanging that flying that flag for the swinging straight ahead uh, jazz standard, and so much so that as you'll hear today, when people like James Taylor and Paul McCartney are hitting you up to come play on their jazz records, then you know you're you're doing something right.
2: And I think it's interesting to hear John explain how the notion of a standard has evolved.
1: Yeah and and we even dip into a bit of his rock and roll past and how those songs have uh have worked their way into his kind of psyche when he uh when he arranges this so uh so today's record is going to be or today's episode is going to be how he and how he thinks about and interprets these standards and even the stories behind some of these mashups he's done on records with with the Beatles and the Allman Brothers and everything else and and also some in-the-studio stories about James Taylor and Paul McCartney. So so dig into this episode. This is a good one, and we'll see you guys later this week.
3: I'm Dweezil Zappa. On my own musical journey, I've had two mentors. One of them was my dad, and the other was Edward Van Halen. The impact Edward Van Halen made on music is enormous. And I find it fascinating to learn how top guitarists were affected and influenced by his playing. Every episode in this series will reveal something different about Van Halen's music. I'll be taking you on a song-by-song discovery of the nuances in the music that literally change people's lives. Put on your shoes. It's time to start running. The Dweezil is found exclusively at dweezilzappa.com, a reward music powered artist site.
1: All right, John. So today uh, I want to talk to you about the art of the standard and kind of what I want to get to with that topic is how you balance paying respect to the tradition like your heroes like Nat King Cole and how you kind of use your influences and your modern influences to kind of push the music forward. It's, it's probably not a stretch to say that you're, you're a traditionalist when it comes to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I, there's a, a couple of records you've done, like uh, the Double Exposure record, mm-hmm. where you take, take standards and then you take maybe an Almond Brothers tune or, or a, a non-jazz tune and kind of mash them up. And so, tell me. And you mentioned uh, on Monday that you spent some time, you know, playing jazz gigs to support your rock and roll habit. <laughs> <laughs> so, years later now, how do you feel like those outside influences have influenced you in how you interpret jazz standards?
0: Well, I think what's uh, what's what what's really happened is is when I first started. I guess when I was singing the Nat Cole songs. Straighten Up Fly Right Route 66, back in 1980, there was a real revival of, that, of those songs, of what they call the Great American Songbook. So, uh, I mean, Linda Ronstadt was, had made those great records with Nelson Riddle, and then uh, Natalie Cole came along, Diana Krall, it was, there was a real resurgence of just the standards. And I think now, since maybe the turn of the century, there has been this kind of idea that it's not so finite. And that's what I was trying to go, go like, well, why can't I play the songs that I love, too? Uh, and that and started with the Beatle record in, in the mid-90s, where I was thinking, well, how are we going to make, how can we make, we, what we, we had done was we recorded Honey Pie. Honey Pie, you are making me crazy. I'm in love, but I'm lazy. So won't you please come home? And, and Don Sebesky wrote this big arrangement, and everybody asked me about it, and I was like, well, if they asked me a lot about just that one song, what if I did 12 Beatles songs? And that's a that's a whole other show. But the th- idea being, how do we translate them in? And so Don thought about, um, and and, and it became the mashup idea, the, the idea that uh, maybe uh, uh, Can't Buy Me Love was sort of the blues set to uh, – uh, Woody Herman's Woodchopper's Ball. I had the idea to go, Little darling, it's been a long, long, long winter. Make winter. Here comes the sun, like a Jobim song. And then I even did, uh, uh, we did uh, Oh Darlin sort of as a, a slow bassy thing. And then we had Get Back as like a, a one of those uh, little hip uh, bumping on sunset West things. So, then I, that was an idea that just stayed in my head. And, and then when I started to do cabaret acts at the Carlisle with my wife, and she'd say, Well, I want to do this Billy Joel song. Let's see should be. Uh, so it'd be in G. They say that these are not the best of times, but they're the only times i ever know. But we, I said, Well, it's really a sad, so what if I put it in minor? And I went, These are not the best and the idea that you could sort of reharm things harmonically minor or something to make them and and i found that we were taking this songbook that we grew up with in the 60s and 70s and sometimes the 80s and we could figure out ways to make them to bring the, those people who heard those songs into a jazz room in a sense so like if you and i were you know, like the Beatles, I feel fine. Or you know, you mentioned uh, uh, the the Allman Brothers. You know, I certain I thought of it. Well, what if Elizabeth Reed were uh, was played by West Montgomery? You know, uh. but the band's gone. So the idea of taking that and it really was exciting to say these things can work and they're good songs and oh that's the thing too the a good song is a good song and when you start to put them in there in different realms that you're not killing like even silly love songs that we did with on the paul mccartney record they all started to pay off and and really uh it was a fun challenge to say well i really like that song how can i bring it to jazz listeners without them going oh they're playing neil young start to realize yeah. like yeah. They start liking Harvest Moon, and uh, yeah. it's wild going back that I can see when I do my Thursday night Facebook Live things that they are, oh, let's hear Harvest Moon again, you know. So the the way to translate those songs to the listeners that i have come along with me has been interesting. That's a long answer, but I think I got there.
2: Yeah, you did. Now, I'm curious, too. You've been playing as a professional jazz guitarist f- about four decades at least. Yeah. And... Um, So you have a perspective uh, also through your father, Bucky, um, of what it takes to be a professional jazz guitarist and make your way through the world playing the guitar. And today, could you compare what – how you feel it is – what the challenges are today? And I don't mean in COVID, Tom. I just mean in – generally speaking in our era – Compared to being a jazz guitarist in the seventies or eighties, or with your dad before that, how have things changed? Is it harder? Is it easier? Is it better? Is it not?
0: Yeah, there's so many. I guess you you would know too. There's so many different things that have happened. I mean, even on an educational level, how even uh, it was just beginning in in the in the uh, mid seventies that you know places like William Patterson had a jazz program, or they had guys from New York who went out with William Patterson in Wayne, New Jersey and would uh, teach what they knew about stuff, you know, and Thad Jones was running and Rufus Reed eventually running that program. And then all of a sudden, there's people majoring in jazz around the country. Uh, As for the guitar, it was sort of the same thing. I mean, we were sort of all learning from somebody else, going to clubs and having to hear what you wanted to hear or buying the records and and uh, playing them, taking the needle off. Whereas now you can, you can buy it digitally. You can put it in a slow downer. You can sit. I still do it and listen to certain things and go, "Oh, that's what Herb Ellis was doing." I got, I got a better <laughs> grasp. Of it. And uh, so, and the equipment is always interest, more interesting. It's so interesting how uh, there's so many different luthiers for the guitar now, and uh, finding somebody who makes a perfect fit for you, and and getting yeah. the kind of equipment you want. The amplifiers are lighter and smaller, which is always, you know, I, I had to carry the pro reverb when, you know, Bucky and I played together. He said, you carry the amp. So <laughs> uh, but those kinds of things, you know, it are just so uh, interesting. And then just the, I guess it's been the discoveries that guitar players are making as youngsters now are so exciting to see, you know, hear them hear Wes Montgomery or Django Reinhardt or Bucky or George Barnes. You could find those, guitar players much more readily now you know it's like if i say george barnes and nobody knows who he is they can go click and there's george barnes and you go oh you know so i've you know i've always said oscar moore george barnes and george van epps and not three readily available but and then but now you can just go click and hear the music and uh so that's been fun about the discoveries that young guitar players are making plus guitar players i think are playing completely different taking completely different Chances now Randy Napoleon, I plays with just his fingers and you know, doesn't even use a lot of guys don't use picks anymore and uh they do they they use uh you know, used to be you get yourself an ES 175 you know, and that, that was the jazz guitar. Now guys are playing telecasters and things like that. They're finding ways to express themselves that were outside of the realm when we were growing up, you know. That was the thing. I was gonna play a yeah. I wanted to get a Charlie Christian guitar at the beginning of my trio days because i was like i don't know if i can really afford or find a seven string and bob benedetto had an extra like laminated top you know just the the bottom of the line but brilliant little guitar that seven string guitar and that changed the whole and that, he was the first guy after de and d'angelico making those kind of guitars so oh there's a arch top with a seven string and i can take that on the road and and cases have changed <laughs> You know, you, you can actually put your guitar in a case and put it on a plane, and it comes out in one piece. Wow.
1: Most, Most times, time. yeah. <laughs> so you touched on a bit about jazz education. Did you ever mess around with any of George Van Eps's books?
0: No, uh, I, we, we laugh because... Uh, I, somebody the other day took a picture of their guitar, and behind it was the George Van Epps book. And I said, "Have you had it translated to English? Because it's so uh, I've never even opened it up. I've had many discussions with my friend Rick Hayden about it. And
1: uh, you're talking the big one, not the not the original one, right? The harmonic but mechanisms. Lucky had the original one. The original one. Okay.
0: Yeah, and he and he even had it. And I don't even know. I mean, he may have opened it once or twice and gone like, you know, the first couple of pages and <laughs> closed the book. Uh, But uh, listening to the records was the big thing for me. I would listen to the mellow guitar and try to learn as much as, you know. You know, try to get as much of the stuff just to see what he was doing. And and for me, all the, the best parts about what he was doing was the was all that you know the little things that the glue in between the melody that was what were all the secrets lie uh for what i heard on george on the records the
1: the american songbook standards definitely have a specific harmonic language that if you learn a dozen of them you're going to start to see patterns pretty quickly you know so but you seem to be a complete jukebox of that entire songbook. How do you remember all these songs? <laughs>
0: well, that's, you know, it's uh, unfortunately, it's my answer all the time is that uh, it started with uh, the guy next to me going and he'd wait to hear the chords. And if he, he didn't hear them the first time, he'd start to growl. Ah! You know, and he never yelled the chord out. So the this, the course that I took was going, okay, they're, usually they'll start with one six two five. So I had an idea, and and then what I you know I learned through this uh, terror of ear training that my father was putting me through was I started to hear. I would learn some of them. I'd go home and and look at the book real quick and say what the hell was that you know that he did last night and sort of go okay I think I got that. But it was literally all on the bandstand play melodies and I had uh, hear them in my. Uh, in my uh, dumb little head. So, uh, and then as you know, that's been great to then, as I've tried to find songs to sing, go into a fake book and look at it. And because of working with a guy like Don Sebesky or, 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 and obviously with my father or listening to George Van Epps, I'd go, well, what would be a good set of changes that would work around this? And what did my father always say? Well, if you look at this, you're looking at the melody and you see what chords they may write up there and there's no tab just a chord but then you look below and it's not an f7 it's an f7 or it's an f with an a in the bass and then you start to see how things then you start to see how the patterns all work out and then when you start to fake on tunes you can go oh i think what they mean is you know it's not just an e-flat it's an e-flat with a g in the bass or with the seventh in the bass you know
1: and those kind of differing bass lines, like is right down the middle of the plate for seven string guitar players. Yeah, because you have you have way with one finger, you're able to reach a wider range of bass notes. Yeah, yeah. you know because of that seven. And
0: you're ending a song on a D flat chord with a D flat in the bass. You know, and and uh, but the funny thing is, my father worked out. I've got a crush on you for a Larry Adler record that Carly Simon was going to sing, and he worked this whole thing out in F. He had it all figured out. It's really a beautiful record. And it was just sort of him, Larry Adler on harmonica, and then George Martin, who produced the record, just wrote the orchestra right around what Bucky did. But the record's in G-flat. And I said, how did that happen? He said, well, said, can you do it a half step up? After he had worked the whole thing out in F, and he just went, well, it's only an inch away. And he did it. But that was his his theory was, well, it's right there still. It's not like it's any different. Whereas and I think that's what the 7th string provides to you too. You're still going to find those notes even if you're up a half step or if you have to change something at the last minute. Oh, he took out his well, capo, right?
1: No. He... <laughs> <laughs> Mostly I see, As as great as open strings are on the guitar, they in some situations they can be an anchor around your neck. Yeah. You know.
0: So that's you know, it's it's yeah. I think the beauty of it yeah. for me and I I've worked a lot of uh, Pat Metheny tunes in, during the lockdown because I felt like I wanted to do something different, and I, you know, I watched my father as a kid uh, play classical music, sit there and try to uh, play all the pieces, and I thought, well, my classical music to me is the, is these these melodic Pat Metheny tunes, and I started. Oh, James. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know. I mean. so I started with that and I and and the idea that the seventh string provided me you know and I started to find where the where it all laid out on the guitar so it didn't have to be in the original keys I could find ways to make those things work and and the seventh string provided me with with the notes and the things that I wanted to do to to make those pieces work so it's also, I really got into a, a thing about discovery on the guitar, too. And, it you know, well, it doesn't have to be in that key. I can make it work even with the open, but it's going to work with the, because I got F sharp up here, you know, which is that low thing. So that's really great.
1: A couple times throughout uh, our conversation here, you, you've mentioned two kind of prime influences, one being the Beatles, another one being James Taylor. And come to find out, when those two, uh, when Paul McCartney and James Taylor want to do a jazz record, they called John Pizzarelli to help out. <laughs> so let's start first with James Taylor. And tell me how that kind of collaboration came together when he decided he wanted to do a standards record.
0: Well, luckily, when James was making October Road, he had a jazz tune that he wrote called Mean Old Man. And Russ Titleman is a friend of mine. And he said, I want you to play rhythm guitar on this thing with Larry Goldings playing piano and Steve Gadd and Jimmy Johnson on bass. So it was a really, I was like, oh, okay. And we went to Clinton and uh, in New York and, and I sat there and I got to play my Bucky Pizzarelli role. You know, I was so excited and I got to play the verse with him on that tune too. It's the only song on the record that he, James didn't play guitar on. And in the middle of uh, we, we showing me the tune uh, you know he he was he really liked the rhythm guitar. He was really taken by it and said, "I wish you'd show me how you do that rhythm guitar thing, that chunk chunk thing." And I said, "Well, you've got to show me how you do that finger picking thing because I don't play my D chords and A chords backwards." So, and we and we had a nice little thing, and I got to play the verse with him. It was another bit of Bucky Pizzarelli education, where he right after that he said, "Well, let's do have yourself a merry little Christmas," and it was a, a and I had a look at the lead sheet and I found the chords and got to play the verse with them and only took a, uh, 15 years later he's, he texted me and said I want to do a record of standards and you demand that was the text <laughs> and I just went holy you know <laughs> it was amazing and you know he's a genius he's a, he's a brilliant guitar player and a, you know and his interpretive thing was he was going to take those songs and make them sound like James Taylor songs and it was wonderful and I got to play the seventh string and then he'd say uh now play the rhythm and I brought this little uh, L7 and I would add the rhythm parts and then they did everything else with it but it was really uh it was a it was wonderful The be and he, you know he did it in his barn so we had we, we were there like two weeks just working you do a song for six hours eat dinner and you do another song and go to bed and, the next day was the same thing, you know, but it was great to see how he was interpreting the songs.
1: He's, he's an underrated guitar player because anytime you play a D chord and you hammer on from the E to F sharp, like what other guitar player with a simple hammer on of a cowboy chord like invokes that sound? Like in, that's James Taylor. Yep. I mean, and he's it, a very underrated guitar player.
0: Yeah. And he's, and, and, uh, the last, uh, well, the last couple of records too—the songwriting and the, the way he's worked in all a lot of uh, minor yeah. nines and the way his harmonic sense was so—and he would, uh, could you say, I always like to go from the A seven plus five right to the B flat. I was like, well, that's cool, you know. Like he had, he has his ideas and they—they they so work. Mm. So when I—I I had an arrangement for something and I wanted him to go. Uh, and he was
1: like, you really James Taylorized that thing, you know, because it was like, I've been working do yeah. this since I
0: was 17.
1: <laughs> yeah, right? No kidding. All right, now the other side of that coin is Paul McCartney. Uh, and Kisses on the Bottom was the it was the album you worked with him on, right? hmm And so uh, so you explain kind of the, the Russ Titleman connection with James. How did, uh, did Paul McCartney text you and say, I'm doing this? No.
0: <laughs> As a matter of fact, uh, it was Ringo. No, it was... It was uh, It was uh, it was La Puma It was Tommy La Puma uh, I, don't, I can't remember why He dug my playing Or knew what I did He came to see me uh, once or twice uh, With my wife at Feinstein's And he had used Bucky on rhythm guitar In the past on a David Sanborn record But I remember La Puma called me up it was a funny phone call Because he said, hey man I've got a record date for you I can't tell you who it's with It's with Paul McCartney and, and I was like okay and so it we just went out to the coast and, and you know sitting in a room going okay with Diana Krall and uh, Mr. Hurst on uh, bass and, and Kareem Riggins and we were just sort of going what do you want to do and Paul wanted to make a record you know he wanted it to be uh, like a jazz record not a jazz record but like a standards record like if he were a pop singer singing those songs and he picked great songs and mm-hmm. instead of sit there and 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 that was the other challenge, was every once in a while, Diana Krall would say, I've played enough intros, you play the intro. And you'd say, okay, what's the intro on this? So you'd go. You know, you had to figure anywhere on the spot to come up with something. So all all those Bucky Pizzarelli hours that he'd say, it's not just playing five choruses on Cherokee, you may have to be called to play an intro for Paul McCarthy, you know, and... So that was, uh, it was a lot of those things came in handy.
1: What was the biggest thing you learned from seeing Paul McCartney working in the studio as a musician?
0: He was very generous. He, he was very open-minded, and both of them. What's so great? What's interesting about him? When you know, when I make a record, which you know I, I have to do in two days, and they can do over a period of six months. That's a big difference. But you know, I like to you know, make a take or two, and then say, "Okay, let's go listen." He'll do six or seven takes in a row and they'll know maybe even knowing they got one but then paul will say maybe uh john clayton you play the bass up front on this instead let's see how that works or maybe you know uh you should play a guitar solo on this instead of whatever else was going to happen so they were always both of them are always like let's try something different james was about trying to find different chords the second time around Paul was about trying to make sure everything had sort of a unique uh, thing to it, flavor to it. He played guitar in one or two things. And if he didn't like something, he made a little joke. I mean, I was doing, I used to like to go like. Because I sort of had a little, I thought it was sort of a nice little kind of string thing. And then he'd say, no Italian guitar playing on this one. Because you know, like, he thought it sounded like a, he thought it sounded like a mandolin, you know. So it was fine, right. but it was cool. We'd say, "Okay, I got you," you know. And it was very loose and and uh, but they you understood in both situations why they are where they are because it's not just like hey D chord, you know. It's like there's an idea that's going on to all of that harmonically, and what they they got done what they wanted to get done and brilliantly. Mm-hmm. Which was exciting.
1: Well, uh, it's been exciting to have you this week, John, join us on, on Chasing Frets. So uh, thanks again, and we'll have you back uh, later this week.
0: Thank you very much.